0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hello and welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only and greatest podcast history of the devil. My name is Klaus Yoder and I'm here with my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing this fine evening in America?
1: Yeah, this is a fine evening in America and everything is fine. And there were no Supreme Court decisions today. And so that's, that's how I'm treating the day today. Um, I am in total denial. Uh, I will say though, that revisiting grad school, uh, notions of graduate school, through the movie we're about to talk about, with you feels awesome and very appropriate since we were buddies in grad school
0: and when i picked this movie i was looking for of course devil themed movies and i am a fan fan might be a little complicated i do appreciate the films of john carpenter who is the director of the film we're talking about in this next installment of our sinful summer cinema series uh we're talking tonight about Prince of Darkness 1987 directed by John Carpenter
1: Anyone in close proximity has the same dream what is it a secret that can no longer be kept it started a month ago what started a change in the earth and the sky is power
0: there's a weird locking mechanism looks like it can only be opened from the inside
1: a life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. It's becoming something. What?
0: So yeah, we went to graduate school together and it so happened that this film is a lot about graduate school and in interesting ways and ways that might be sort of uh, re-traumatizing as I guess many things about graduate school tend to be. I guess one of the thoughts I had talking about this movie, thinking about this movie that I wanted to, you know, pose to you was, is the Prince of Darkness the best the greatest or the worst movie about graduate school ever made?
1: I love this question because I think in some ways that's the same thing because graduate school has <laughs> its, its own uh, difficulties built into the structure of what it is and the labor that's extracted f- from you, et cetera, such that to call it a great movie about graduate school, in a sense, is also a claim about its representation of of life as a graduate student so i say all of that and recognize the limitations of graduate school but also i should mention that it was a fo- I, I remember that time fondly uh mainly for the relationships that i built during the time and the leisure i had because I was at a fancy graduate school to spend time on reading and research um that otherwise you have to kind of i have to pigeonhole into my life
0: yeah, yeah. what do you right. think
1: klaus i'm gonna throw that question back at you
0: right back at me. yeah, so a few things. I also think that if it's a f- decent representation of grad school, then it has to also be sort of horrible. And so I think that that you're right on point about that. Um, some things that struck me this films made in the 80s. the thing that really struck me was how much the movie is about, like sexual harassment that is passed off as normal. And we should probably talk about the plot at some point. I can I can go up, give a brief sketch of the plot. But yeah, like the the idea that grad school is like this sort of extended, smarter, co ed, frat movie was how it was presented here. It's like it's like there's a lot of beautiful graduate students who are to be hit on constantly by a bunch of like annoying condescending, snide white graduate students. Um, there are like some there are just some like some passages in this movie where the the one physics student who is who the fuck even is this guy? Is it Jameson Parker is Brian Marsh? Is Brian is Brian our main graduate student? Brian I got that thing up Brian
1: that. has our mustache and is the Brian, romantic yeah, Brian,
0: yeah. Brian the mustache Is like the question that people like me have on our minds in our department is that why does no one who looks like you, i.e., like blonde and photogenic, why no one like you ends up in theoretical physics? You're over down in practical physics, applied physics. Like, what does it take to get someone who looks like you to hang out with us? And she's like, you're a sexist fuck. And he's like, oh, you're getting so defensive. Oh God, I'm just trying to make a joke. Like this gaslight, like this sort of like gaslight. I don't know, it's really startling to see, to be like, oh, like this was an image of what was supposed to be normal in, in higher ed and probably is <laughs> still too normal in higher ed. I'm glad you brought up that
1: moment though because I couldn't tell what the expectation was uh around that scene it seemed like it was we were all expected to react in a certain way but because it's from a different time with a different politics i couldn't tell like the, when he tries to play it off as a joke the gaslighting moment um when that's not at all what was happening i just couldn't were we supposed to th- actually agree with her that he is a him. total yeah. like bag because he was he was awful uh, okay, cool. just I'm um, that actually redeems the movie slightly for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean they, right there's an openness there. Um, the other thing was obviously um, the racial representational aspects where, In this film, graduate school, we're really doing a great job selling this movie, (laughs) uh, which is like in many ways like an enjoyable movie. But like you can also hate watch things and be like, you know, watch it. I I do this constantly. I'm like watching things. I'm like, this is interesting aesthetically, and I'm watching it because like like, I hate his politics at the same time. Do that a lot these days, but uh, like the racial aspect. So like Travis, how would you describe the composition of the physics class? What is it supposed to be? UCLA? Is that what it's supposed to be? Well
1: interesting you should mention that i sh- i should mention that the sets here are uh USC. Are USC it was shot at my alma mater so fight on trojans etc fuck you yeah. i could not tell though you know the campus of usc has served to be you know harvard law school and ucla and all you know just all manner of educational institutions across different films so i couldn't really tell if we were supposed to be in a public or private institution i just there were not really sufficient clues here um we, we yeah. did have palm trees. We were unabashedly in Southern California, I think. So of the but you were asking me about the the racial dynamics of of who's who's who is who and yeah so we have in terms of professors we have the sort of our lead is an asian american man who is the um what is he is he in He's in theoretical physics, right? Because he is theoretical a, physics. And, professor yes. Howard Burak. Yes, yes. Played by Victor Wong, Victor Wong. who is yes.
0: a, who's in other Carpenter films. Yeah,
1: yeah he's really great. Um we see the students um the graduate students from various departments we have a we have a real interdisciplinary
0: bunch here a real commitment to multidisciplinarity, oh, yeah. interdisciplinarity, yes. all the disciplines all the kind of disciplining you could want happens in yeah. This yeah they're at this lock-in
1: we should really go over the plot at some point um but they're at this yeah. somehow impossible lock-in but racially i'm supposed to be talking about race here so we have primarily white students with some um but a mix right there's an african-american man there's an. there's one there is yeah. one asian-american yeah. man and there's one woman who is told that she could pass for asian-american who is actually played by what appears to be an asian-american woman um yeah uh her last name
0: that's that's uh th- i think that's that's Ann Yen. as Ann Yen. Yen. Yeah, but I theology. don't know
1: Ann Yen's actual uh, race or ethnicity. Anyway, that, and then I think everyone else is white. Is that right, Klaus?
0: Well, there's the, I mean, the guy who told her she could pass as Asian is also Asian. So there's like, basically right. like, there's like a lot of white people. There's a lot, there's not as many, but some Asian American people mm-hmm. and a black guy played by Jesse Lawrence Ferguson, who has, who was called her, Who's a? I guess he's a chemist. I'm not sure. I forget his actual his discipline, but uh, he's actually very effective and scary. He had and he had a he had a career beyond this this film, which was like sort of like kind of a part of Carpenter's B movie period, after some failure commercial failures. But yeah, uh, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson, the, this who has to be the the hook and black man of this film actually kind of kills it, oh and is, it is, is very creepy when he gets possessed, and and sort of is really like ha- like had like sort of the right kind of like flair for the camera and and really just like took over a scene he kind um, of
1: steals so the show to him. yeah
0: in a part considering how fucking racist this all is like he does pretty does a pretty good job
1: yeah it- i mean you have to admire someone who can take what is so clearly this like weird tokenizing role and turn it into this moment where the film actually i think goes somewhere interesting uh, all because of his performance yeah that's that's pretty impressive.
0: Yes. Um, so should we talk about what yeah. happens in this movie, Klaus? Yeah, so just a quick uh, plot rundown of The Prince of Darkness. Without getting too bogged down in the weeds, it comes to pass that a Catholic cleric played by Carpenter stalwart Donald Pleasance, who has a famous role in Halloween, which is Carpenter's first big movie, Donald Pleasence discovers that there's a secret brotherhood of Catholic monks clerics. I don't know whether they're religious or secular, it's unclear to me. It doesn't matter. Uh but anyway, there's a secret brotherhood who has been keeping watch over this site that is supposed to be the repository of the devil in gelatinous form. They do say that the jello green swirling jello has really formed in the last, I forget, like year or so or a few months. But they've been keeping guard over this like site of where pure evil is manifest. And so Donald Pleasance as just who is just credited his, his character is, is priest. (laughs) He contacts professor Howard Burak, who's a theoretical physicist as a way of trying to get a scientific gloss put on the problem of evil to make humanity wake up to its dangers and because this evil is intensifying in power and scope, so Burak is kind of has a philosophical, metaphysical bent to it. He he could, he can quote the Book of Job and quantum string theory stuff like in the same breath, right? He's doing all this this you know he's he's really he's a he's a Renaissance man. That's he's he you know he's a polymath and. He is intrigued by this. He's intrigued by the sort of non-newtonian qualities of this green goo, which for other hard people out there really to me calls back to the film Reanimator, which came out in 1985, so very close to this uh, this film. The sort of Reanimator is this film where like you stab corpses with this green goo and they come back to life. In this case, it's like this stuff is just pure evil. And it, it has like all kinds of crazy physical properties that interests uh, Professor Burak. Professor Burak calls together a crack squad of whichever Los Angeles graduate f- faculty's best graduate students are in the sciences and also the humanities, because there's a, a doorstop of a dusty tome that needs to be translated that has all these crazy differential equations and so they're like combining like chemistry, physics, biology, and theology and the classics in this project. And they're all doing it in this chapel that has been abandoned but is the site of like this brother of brothers of what is it what do they call it again? Brothers of sleep. sleep. The Brotherhood of Sleep. Br- Brotherhood of Sleep. in this chapel that the Brotherhood of Sleep has been keeping watch over for 500 years or something since like the, the sort of early Spanish colonial period. So they're doing this. And of course, not to get too into all the jump scares and scares and stuff, whatever happens. But like they're all they all have to do this over a weekend and they're locked in. And ominous crowds of like unhoused people who seem to be possessed are gathering outside this mission chapel. And they're sort of trapped inside. And then the slime starts, like, infecting different members of the graduate student team as they're studying the book and the goo. And those people become, like, demonically possessed and try to kill and convert, like, slime other people. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of, like, what is happening through the most of the movie. The end game is they try to really super possess this one graduate student so that she can become like the living manifestation of Satan. Yeah. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Kelly. This is crucial because what this book, this this sort of tome that they're translating turns out to say is that really the world of Christian orthodoxy and the story of the Bible is bullshit. And that what we have is a sort of thoroughgoing cosmic dualism that. Basically, Jesus was an alien and he came to tell us about an evil God who had been imprisoned in like a parallel dimension and that all of evil is like this sort of cosmic particle level war between like particles and antiparticles. It's like the world is really con- is like con- is divided in two and there is the, the, the real message of Jesus was to like sort of get ready for this kind of apocalyptic showdown between good versus evil. Anyway, so all kinds of things, ensue from that, um, we probably will develop the plot more as we talk through some of these moments. But that's sort of—it's sort of like, oh, we're trapped, and cosmic evil is about to be manifest. And what do we do? And how do we how do we solve this problem? That's kind of like what the the sort of action of the movie is. Anything to add? Anything that you would yes. want to, you would want to sort of
1: a quick. Tangent um, on sets. So we've already discussed uh, USC. Yes.
0: California, Uber, Alice, California, Uber,
1: um, but also, I want to talk about the church, um, that the building that they use, at least the exteriors from. I It looked oddly familiar. And I realized, because I used to work, I did this LA County Arts internship, Uh, is the home of East West Players, which is this Asian American theater company, but the building is super interesting and historic. Um, It used to be in the, it was built in the 1920s, used to be the home of three Japanese American congregations, but then World War II hits, and it becomes, the steps of that church become one of the gathering places that Japanese Americans have to go before they're shipped off to internment camps. So a really kind of, heavy history to the building but then after that um after that happens there's a period where it becomes a center for african-american life and it's actually turned into a community center in the during the war years um when there are these great the great migration is happening and you have an influx of african-americans into los angeles and into downtown this area of downtown and yeah uh fast forward a little bit to after 1945 and the end of the war, Japanese Americans gradually start coming back to the neighborhood, and and Little Tokyo redevelops its um, that particular ethnic character and community. The end. Um, just wanted to mention. Shout out to that really cool That's building. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. That's that, that. That brings a lot. Yeah. It definitely does have community center atmosphere to that building. That's what when looking through, looking at it from the outside and from the inside, it does have that feel. Uh, it does not seem like it's 600 years old or whatever they're probably passive Right,
1: <laughs> nice, try. nice try Los Angeles, nice try. Um, yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be like the the key to the secret room there that goes down to the tunnel that dates back to the you know Spanish colonial period.
0: Uh, and you're like, okay, I, I don't buy it, but. Yeah, right, right. Um, okay, so that's a little bit of the plot the plot is all over the place. Um, one thing to mention and this is a little bit out of out of order, one thing to mention the the, the sort of the the brotherhood of sleep, that's like the the Catholic priests who have been like keeping watch a, a quiet a quiet sleepy vigil over the forces of evil, brooding on the edge of the abyss, ready to storm all of human creation. they all have the same dream over and over again when they are keeping watch and so every member of the graduate student slumber party massacre (laughs) also has the same dream yeah how would you describe the dream to people travis because i think the dream is actually one of the best pieces of filmmaking in the whole thing
1: oh no okay well then you should definitely be the one to describe it uh i don't remember much of the dream there's an ominous presence that's like at the at the entrance of the of the church, yeah. right, and that, ge- yes. and that gradually over the film, who it's it's very unclear at first who that might be, but then by the end we think it's Catherine, but then the very last dream sequence it turns out to be, um, no, sorry, we think it's uh, Kelly rather, who is our you know devil incarnate kind of human host of the goo the main host of the goo but then at the very end brian our mustached brian has the final dream sequence and Catherine has sacrificed herself to save the world on behalf of everyone and Catherine is the figure at the end is there anything more to the dream that you could say
0: yeah and that's an important that's an important point from the plot that there is a final battle and katherine like it turns out that the way to get the god of evil back into the earth, Satan, the God of evil son, in parallel to Jesus' God's son, Satan, the God of evil's son, is trying to push his, her, their arm into the a mirror. So like every time there's a mirror, this is like supposed to be a mirror dimension. And trying to pull the god of evil out and see these scenes where these hands are sort of like reaching for each other in, in the mirrory, misty area. And intrepid practical application of physics graduate student Catherine Danforth sacrifices herself pushing Satan into the mirror dimension so that the Satan figure can't pull the God of evil out. But she's also then trapped in the mirror dimension. And so at the end of the film, the end of the, the film, we see this dream sequence that everyone has who's there, which I thought was a cool idea for the plot. But in the dream, it is Catherine who's emerging from like the depths of this church to be the sort of the new incarnation of, of the evil God. But yeah, the dream, I think in an interview, I'm quoting here from Wikipedia, with Michael Doyle in the November 12 issue of Rue Morgue, John Carpenter revealed how he created the eerie dream sequence in Prince of Darkness that features a shadowy figure emerging from a church doorway. Carpenter first shot the action of the figure with a video camera and then re-photographed it on a television set in order to give the image a peculiar dislocated feeling that also appeared as if it were being filmed live. Doyle also reminded Carpenter that Carpenter, the director himself provided the disembodied voice that narrates each dream. Wow,
1: that's really cool. Um,
0: but it is for like a movie that feels like a genre piece you're like okay there's going to be some gore there's going to be some scares we're going to get some like conflict the dream sequences that each character shares like the idea of everyone having the same dream is interesting and creepy but the dream is also very surreal and and startling and disturbing, and so it's one of the little details of the film that I think actually sort of elevate it a lot. Like a little bit goes a long way with with those the, the the sort of creepy details of the dream sequence. It's creepier than anything that happens in any of the fights, I, I would say. Oh yeah, um, I think
1: the only the only scene that measures up is our. Grad student.
0: Oh, uh, Jesse Lawrence
1: Ferguson as Calder. Calder. So Calder's performance um, is the only scene when Calder really loses it. That's the only scene that, for me, yeah. kind of rivals the dream scenes because there's that that yeah. uh, that atmospheric element you get from the dream sequence, and then is matched by the act, the incredible acting from Calder's the Calder, the grad student. Uh, I think that those are the two scene, the two elements of the film yeah. that I think were most interesting that rose above the level of the genre film.
0: And what you interest what you what you hear in the dream sequence, which is also, is this voice that apparently is John Carpenter's voice, is saying, "This is a message from the future. We can't override your conscious mind, but we can only broadcast messages into your subconscious and your dream state." And this is like important footage that you need to see that will like help you understand what's happening or something. It's from like, and it says it's like it's from you know the the distant future of 1999 or something yep. like that, right? You know, um, so yeah, 1999 as 666 inverted is always is always close to every filmmaker pre you know pre <laughs> pre 2000s filmmakers heart.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I was wondering if you wanted to dive next into. Kind of the textual, the religious mythology of the film a little bit to get toward the problem of evil.
0: Yeah, right. And Donald Pleasance um, is a good way also to say something about Carpenter. Uh, Carpenter's break. One of Carpenter's breakout films is Halloween, and Donald Pleasance plays the psychiatrist who treats Michael Myers, the serial killer in Halloween, and he's the one who's like, sort of tracking him through the whole film. I will say like, I haven't seen every Carpenter film. I haven't seen Dark Star, which is like his first film. I'm really like doing police project stuff. So I'm like really into assault on precinct 13 and other films like Halloween, which is like, you know, sort of quintessential slasher film. He does a remake of the thing. He's really interested in evil. He's really interested in evil as like a metaphysical problem, but I would say with Carpenter, he's mostly interested in evil because he thinks it's good entertainment. So, for example, in Assault on Precinct 13, it's a movie about a gang trying to destroy a police station. Carpenter Carpenter thinks he is able to sort of take any kind of sociological realism out of the film by making the gang multi-ethnic which kind of defaults to a brown menace of, of, of actually like Mexican Americans. But like, he thinks he's like, Oh, if it were all an all black gang or an all white gang, I'd be doing a social commentary. But I tried to, I tried to get all that social realism out because I'm not interested in like the psychological and political problems that made these people into gang members. I'm interested in them as like manifestations of pure evil because that's, that's like compelling filmmaking. So A lot of what he does with with the problem of evil and the idea of evil is like in the service of entertainment and genre filmmaking. I would say, in this film, he gets a little deeper, uh, and I think it's what your question is leading. Your question was leading us to because it's this point where like we have this interesting reflection on what evil would mean from like a kind of theoretical physics, like model and a philosophical model, and on the one hand. It's like evil as like this all-consuming dualism, like particle, like getting to the subatomic level and seeing like for every particle there's an antiparticle, that like the the world that we ex- like live in that seems to be like well ordered is actually really chaotic at the the atomic level, and evil is framed in this story as a war as something that's equally as powerful as the good or is equally as powerful as, like, sort of, like, sort of God's ordained being that's, like, waiting to break out and is sort of latent in all of us. So, like, that's one way evil is displayed. It's, like, sort of almost seems all pervasive. But that's kind of belied, then, by the fact that evil is also, like, exclusively and most excellently a green slime in this vat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the kitsch of that, though. Um, oh, yeah, know, totally. What I, totally think, yeah, yeah. what I think is so precious about it is that we get a little bit away from a kind of bland dualism in the yep. vein of... Yeah, not, right. that, not that actual Mannequinism isn't interesting. It is. But a kind of that universal dualism that we see all over movies, TV shows, films. When we get materiality, but not just regular old materiality is bad no 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 no. this this green slime this is all this is evil incarnate right here it's adorable it's it makes you giggle um but then he does things with it right then it becomes you know contagion and of course that has its own uh interesting context which we will get to but i'm not going to let us get there klaus because i'm going to insist now that we talk a little bit about textual history we talk about a little bit about the biblical reflections the book and our theology grad student. That part I wanna I wanna talk about yes. a little bit next.
0: So I got I got a question for you first before hit though. it. Like, imagine you are in the position of the graduate student Lisa. Okay. The the really nice theology grad student, and you are invited to this grad school slumber party massacre. And they're like, we have. A, a three thousand page book that we need you to translate in a night, comprised of Coptic, Greek, and Latin, and God knows what else, Persian mixed with Latin. You know, like <laughs> yes, <his> back yes. <laughs> to deliver us from evil. Um, would you have accepted that challenge, Travis? Would you, if, if all the if all the cool or not so cool science grad students were like, Travis, we need you to come translate the uh, secret scriptures and differential equations would you have would you have gone to that that slumber party i
1: think the key to this question is that the racist epithet the like weird like racist moment with her colleague hasn't happened yet that doesn't happen until after she signs up and so with her i would have totally signed up for a like let's go off to a weird church and we just discovered this book can you translate everything you can from it I wouldn't even tell them that I don't know Coptic. I would just go and then.
0: Well, to be fair, when you look at the pages of what they're translating, it's all just Latin. It is all just Latin.
1: It is Latin, and it would have been just fine. And it's also yeah. It's
0: like it's all like this dog Latin. Yeah.
1: And it's, it's also, like, what was the other film where they had fake Latin, like a like a totally fake manuscript? Deliver Us From Evil. It
0: was. Deliver Us From Evil. Deliver Us From Evil.
1: <laughs> and it was just like, could we try a little bit harder? Could you have at least hired, you know, someone who knows something about manuscript studies to, like, fake it a little better? But no, we could not. So, yeah. The dog Latin was not very hard. So, But I do love the scene where um, Lisa, right, is pos- – is, gets possessed herself and then she's so ordinarily most of her job she's translating she has like a computer in front of her which is like love that it's an 80s she's like translating
0: non-stop she's just like it's like coming hot off the page it's like (laughs) exactly and so (laughs) it's like it's like the gif of the cat you know like just like tap it like typing like maniacally (laughs)
1: It totally is. It's like not possible to translate that quickly, and she's just like, <laughs> brrr, like spitting it out. Uh, so then, when she we move from that as her like regular thing that she's doing in this movie to and and giving speeches about what everything means, like can, like doing these wonderful, amazing summaries of these thousands of pages she's going through. But then she gets possessed by getting you know squirted by the alien goo, and, and <laughs> you know how it is. It's like a real. It sucks when that happens to you but then she keeps <laughs> typing because like, she's so into it. I love this. It's such a grad school moment. She just keeps going but now it just says she's it's like one phrase over and over like I'm alive. I'm alive or something. I live. I live. I live. I live, I live. I live. I live. Yeah, you'll never get away. You're all going to Yeah, die. great
0: moment. And yeah. it's also a great moment because it's this movie is packed with references to other horror films and to me it was a reference to The Shining. The and the in Kubrick's Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining. When um, the, uh, the wife of the novelist, Shelley Duval is looks in on what Jack Nicholson's been, his novel that he's been working on, and she finds just like 500 pages of like all work and no play make Jack a dull no boy. boy yes. and that's kind of what well, you just see like I live over and over and over and over again on the word processor. To me, I was like, oh, this is really, this is really a, a callback to, to The Shining. Yeah, and I high
1: hearted it. Excellent. I think that was like well spotted. I totally think that's what's happening there. Um, And this trope of of what happens underneath, you know, getting to that subconscious, which is where these dreams are all coming from. We all just repeat like a single message over and over, apparently. (laughs) Just love it. I love it. So when we get into a little bit of what our mythology is supposed to be, we've got this book that just, you know, very conveniently is located next to our slime machine. So we know what everything is. Yeah, and means.
0: the slime machine is, like, in this, like, super gothic chamber. There's, like, candles and altars and icons. There are it's
1: hundreds like, of candles. It, There's, like, one priest who is supposed to be taking care of it. It's this. a
0: fucking fire hazard, man. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my god. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's, love that. Love that. So we got this book. Book needs to be translated. Fortunately, we have Lisa. But what comes out seems like occasionally we get snippets of of text. And so, like, I saw a star fall from heaven, cast out as water from a flood or something. So we get little mashups of different parts of Revelation, for example, you know, like real scripture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we have little bits of that. But then when it's time for Lisa to give the kind of summary of this analysis, I think we've been in, been through this before, so we don't need to go into detail here. But we've got the father of Satan burying Satan the goo in a container. Christ comes to warn us. The, Christ the alien comes to warn us. Christ gets killed for preaching, right? Because he's you know a heretic and whatever. And the disciples bury the truth until science is sophisticated enough to deal with the truth, which is not that evil is yes. like bad things that you do, like this, rather pedestrian notion of evil but instead it's this ultimate force but it's contained in both goo and antimatter and those things are connected i don't know you're a committed materialist klaus what do you think of this
0: (laughs) (laughs) well this connects me this this is so funny because what i really love about the the giant tome that lisa just like speed translates like she's like a google program or something like i
1: want to be friends with lisa now by the way i think she's really cool
0: well she might like she might squirt at you, and that wouldn't go so well. That's but, true. Yeah, That's true. Um, in her possessed state, but what I love is like, there's this book, and like, a like, why Donald Pleasance couldn't have just read this himself, you know, is a question I have. B when you know when it is read to him, he's like, my fate was a scam. <laughs> <laughs> it's <was> so funny. <laughs> You're just like you are he's like, like the worst he's like, priest ever. He's like, <laughs> He's, like, ready to rip his collar, his, his, his priestly collar out. He's like, this is all fucking bullshit. <laughs> you know, like, right, because the this book, and, this random and,
1: book that's in the basement is definitely overrides everything else he's ever, like, lived, experienced, or learned. Yes, or, like, believed. Mm-hmm. It's all out the window.
0: It's inter- What he says is interesting, though. It's hilarious how quickly he tears the veil from his eyes and can see in his red-pilled, green-goo-pilled truth what's going on. Um, but what he says is he's like, we taught, what we taught in Catholicism mm-hmm. and Christianity more broadly yeah. was that evil was something that was about what human beings were doing wrong, you know, sin. And that our story about disobedience and evil and sin was comforting because it centered the human being oh, yeah. in the drama of the universe. But in reality, we're so completely insignificant that to make human beings to be the key to the problem of evil is like such a like, like miscarriage of theological justice that like, like just reading about this sort of more basic material cosmological dualism, just like, blows it out of the water in terms of like like everything that the church taught about sin um that it learned from the alien jesus uh becomes becomes like totally irrelevant like you know and then it's also we get this kind of dan brown like oh like the alien jesus brought us this truth about the canister of goo buried in california (laughs) and um you know (laughs) and in a world uh, where
1: (laughs) evil is contained in a goo and buried in a church in california
0: yeah yes 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 um yes all of that and that like it's all been a conspiracy to silence the truth of 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 alien jesus and his message of hope, peace, tranquility and world peace that evil is a is like a nickelodeon like goop or something that's going to fall from the ceiling in some fucked up game show like so yeah, like that's like what we get in this what's we get in the movie is like evil's bigger than you. It's supposed it's kind of gesturing and this is something that Carpenter does I think more in his next film which is like more indebted to H.P. Lovecraft. We get this idea that Evil is like, from from Lovecraft that like, evil is cosmological and bigger than you, and like you are insignificant. Like it's not about your feelings and like your disordered desires and stuff. Like evil is like, bi- alien civilizations billions of years old that are like trying to like accomplish goals that you couldn't even begin to fathom. You like, you are so insignificant. Interesting idea. You know the sort of like cosmic dread yeah. is is the sort of payoff of this. It, um, but like, it's kind of belied by the fact that like Satan comes back as a human being, which is the thing in the H.P. Love, like H.P. Lovecraft. Like these these aliens are like these kind of like undescribable, like totally like bizarre manifestations that like if you look at you go crazy, like that you can't even process what they are. In this film, you know there were there were budget constraints, but like you know the Prince of Darkness comes back in a humanoid form. And it's, like, supposed to be all bigger than humans, but yet the film, like, kind of falls back on the default of, like, oh, like, the devil is a guy in a weird suit kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. that's my, like, that's, like, my dickhead reading of the problems (laughs) of this film. Wait, what did
1: you make of the... I want to go back to our secret brotherhood of, you know, sleep for a second and wonder with you about... The description of them was amazing. It was, like... As they're walking down, you know, the priest and the professor, I think, are walking down into the, the catacombs, as it were, of this 1920s church. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes, yes. Sure, Jan. Um, that the secret brotherhood existed and the Pope himself didn't even know about it. And they were in- incredibly powerful. No one would ever question what they say. How does that it's all like, fit together? Bruh, like... like what? <laughs> like it just didn't. Um, but I like how that ties into both the idea of you know secret societies, ala a- Dan Brown, right? Conspiracy theory, right? That there's a secret. There are secret organizations that really run the world. Um, and yeah. this kind of vague anti-Catholic. What do you think about that as an anti-Catholic trope? But that's at that's in a movie that's not necessarily well. It, in what ways would you? How would you characterize this yeah. movie's views of Catholicism? I mean, it's a sham. I would say is the
0: number well, one. Well, right? camp, and like yeah. again, this is the other callback. Of course, in a, in one of our early classic episodes when we talk about The Exorcist, yeah. you know the sort of epitome of like Catholic camp horror. Yes. This film is trying to is trying to get there. You see, you like. Spectral visions of nuns, three abreast, walking down the corridor of an abbey. And you're like, oh, this is another world, another age of of pre-scientific whatever. And um, it kind of goes for it. I don't know. I don't actually know Carpenter's background with regard to Catholicism. It's actually a good question. Um, it doesn't seem to be his native spiritual language, I would say. Yeah. That was my, you know. So a lot of it does feel a little bit instrumentalized. In you know it reminds me of these debates because of his of, of Donald Pleasant's the priest's engagement with uh, the professor birak it reminds me a lot of um, a lot of debates about like in in philosophy and religion about the relationship between like theology and sciences mm-hmm. yeah so it reminds me of this essay a famous essay by Stephen Jay Gould who was a, a paleontologist he, he writes about like the sort of like the the sort of two magisteria that like the idea that like these two sources of knowledge in the world science and religion and he's thinking especially about using magisterium you know he's thinking especially about the catholic church that they have that they that they, they have like non-competing spheres of influence And that they're supposed to, that ideally they could like sort of reinforce and inform each other without, you know, he's trying to diffuse the idea that they're in competition. Mm -hmm. He's like, they're just like doing different things and they should actually work together. This film is almost a take on that and is sort of contemporaneous with, I think, with that essay. Um, if it, you know, if if, but like, even if it doesn't come after it, it's like still dealing with this idea of like, what do science and religion have to say to yes, each other? Yes, for sure. Uh, a, a topic, a question that people are, that students are still interested in. Um, but this idea that they can sort of be in conversation and dialogue that's productive, like this film is like a strange dream of that, of like this sort of multidisciplinary conference between like the theology people and like the theoretical physics people. Um, but yeah in terms of Catholicism yeah I do feel like it's kind of like it's almost just a trope and it's not it's right it's just about conspiracies and like it's about it being old that's like the bet it's it's old and they have costumes and that's kind of that seems to be the sort of the upshot of the Catholic component to me <laughs>
1: yeah um, fair enough and I think high camp is a great way to read it um, and it also is a, a bit of a cautionary tale not to, like, dig too far because I think there's there's not really a there there. It's like trying to trace the connections between the green slime, um, the father of the devil and the ubiquitous evil, and the personified evil. I mean, there is there is something about that when you catch this disease, you murder everyone. Like, you're bad in a very like classic sense. So I think there are some, there's some yes. connection there, but one need not spend too much time on it, I think. Where I would like to spend a little time is to think about that goo in terms of uh, body fluids, and the connection that you were pointing out, Klaus, about the AIDS crisis, and the, that this fa- this movie comes out in the in the mid eighties. What did you think about that?
0: Right, we'll give the devil his due. Um, and here I'm doing really deep research, but uh, the film critic John Kenneth Muir describes the kind of imagery around goo and secretions, and dare I say ejaculations that this green slime does as. Being a kind of expression of the AIDS crisis, this is, again, 1987, AIDS crisis isn't, is is like, is a crisis, is a, is a public health catastrophe and pandemic. And, uh, you know, under the watch of, ben, you know, benevolent uh, Ronald Reagan, our fearless world leader in the capitalist crusade against communism was ignored to the point of causing, you know, untold numbers of and probably someone could tell you the actual numbers of of really avoidable deaths by ignoring this public health crisis and and like sort of giving into the instincts of his uh moral majority backers in basically winking at its existence or just you know sort of like you know or pretending it didn't happen basically um so that's like sort of the background in terms of cultural historical context but yeah like evil is supposed to be as we keep harping on is like supposed to be like cosmically like dispersed like evenly but like also concentrated in these fluids and you you know someone spits or shoots you know it it, it, it's very (laughs) it's kind of graphic and evocative when this thing like shoots it's like you know shoots at you uh and there's they even have a part where they're like showing like some sort of like almost like um seismograph like there's like you know like this sort of like generic like uh it almost looks like a polygraph like when the goo like shoots or ejaculates at someone like the graph goes crazy you know it's like oh my god like it expounded this kind of crazy amount of energy like what was it doing um and yeah it gets in your mouth and then you become a zombie killer but mostly you just also shoot other people with goo yeah or the, or it, in the one case you dump the entire vat of green slime into someone's mouth uh so that they can become satan. Right. And then you um, watch over There's a lot of goo mm-hmm. You have to watch yeah. over yeah, you watch over the
1: growing of the satan. Yeah. Too. That's the only other thing. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um so yeah, so I like, I see the point, right? Like where instead of it just being like this kind of abstract cosmic dualism thing you it's like oh like it's like this communicable disease this virus that you keep that you keep passing on and like that seems to be like the real worry of the film is that like it, it could almost sort of just like you can have that kind of exponential growth of satanic sliming uh, and meanwhile all these unhoused people, are out there who are also just because of the fact that they are socially not the norm are under the sway of Satan. And yes, I do think the end of days totally ripped that off from this film mm-hmm. of like having just like homeless people as just like the devil's minions by default because they're like, not like doing the capitalist thing in the way that we think they should be doing it. Um So yeah, that's so yeah, I, I, I thought it was, it made sense to me well they're also diagnosed uh, it's, not my, it's not my idea they're
1: also diagnosed yes. en masse as being schizophrenic which you're just like
0: <laughs>
1: the, right the, the shocking dismissal of individuality and the the way they're seen as less than human it's normal i mean it it's that it is the norm is what i should say but it was
0: really remarkable. well there's one of them who's an individual because the leader of the street people zombies is none other than Alice Cooper. Yeah. The the famed rock and roller schools out forever, baby, when I stab you with this bicycle. Like that, you know, like this bicycle like a shaft or whatever, and that's like the first kill. Yeah. Um strangest part. Uh so yeah, like how did the sort of overt, covert imagery tie into the gay cancer? land with you like what did you think Travis when you were when you were listening and watching this it seemed
1: what was to hand you know the idea of fear and contagion and body fluids and whatnot as sort of
0: very casually borrowed and uh, again like the catholic thing like almost like not yeah really, it's not like, a, it's so much involved so so much at stake right yeah no it it certainly didn't feel like some sort of direct attack on on
1: um the gay community the reagan policy no or whatever. it seemed yeah. if anything um that there you know like an like a child making an art project grasping around for the, the closest crayon. You know, that's what it felt and like. And that's
0: what we do. And we, and we all do that. We all yeah, do that. But like, yes. I think that's, but, but um, yeah. But like, not that we just let Carpenter off the hook. But like, yeah, I think, right. Like it wasn't profound. It was just like, it was really in the in the air, in the water. Yeah. You know, a lot.
1: Was it the most sensitive move one could have made? I would argue definitely not. not. (laughs) Um, You know, we could have could have thought about that choice just a little bit longer. Uh, But uh, yeah, but I think that's that's how I received it was like, oh, okay, well, this is this is where we are. This is what's happening. This fear is speaking of the of the unconscious, which is so important in this movie, that fear of contagion of of a disease that's not well understood, that can't be spoken about well, that is associated with evil, right? The moralizing of of AIDS felt really important, Um, but uh, instrumentally important. Sorry to use your word, but there we have it.
0: No, yeah, oh, yeah, it's here to share, it's here. (laughs) It's an instrument for all to be used uh, at at one's convenience. So right, goo is important. Goo and uh, other fluids, um, bodily or not, are important. The other thing that you see a lot in this film that struck me as a compulsive viewer of 80s cult classics was the use of bugs, a lot of insect imagery, people being eaten by beetles. Again, this idea that, like, oh, like the lower order of creation is subject to the will of the demonic. You have like worms just like attached to the windows, trying to get in. You're like, this is normal science projects, you know, graduate party, sleepover, massacre, and um, a lot of bugs. Very early on, you have this imagery. You'll see like the crescent moon above the sun in some crazy solar eclipse situation, and then you'll see like these ants just going crazy in the dirt, like, you know, like like this. And for me, I saw that I'm like, okay, this is incredible. This movie is 1987. Blue Velvet comes out in '86, and Blue Velvet, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, uses this imagery of of like cl- intense close ups of ants doing their ant life, you know, as a way, as like a metaphor, as a sort of sort of a heavy handed metaphor for like the evil again, a kind of dualism, the evil in suburban communities like you have like this kind of bland suburban world in blue velvet but like you know but then there's frank cutting off people's ears and like dealing drugs and all this stuff um and so like that was a real to me like a real reference to blue velvet or like just like you know whether it was deliberate or not but it really sort of bore the stamp of blue velvet and then there's another film again from within a year or so 1985 a famous horror filmmaker, Dario Argento, big time Italian horror filmmaker. Get this. This is a movie starring Jennifer Connelly. She's in *Requiem for a Dream. She's in a lot of stuff. She is very young in this film. She's like a teenager. She's a young girl going to a crazy academy in Switzerland. And she has the power to control bugs. Like bu- she has like telekinesis of bugs. Um, and so there's a lot of insect imagery in that too. So like, Man, like bugs were just the thing in like the mid late '80s, and and Carpenter was just on that bandwagon. He's like, I'm doing bugs. We're doing close ups of bugs. Bugs are scary. We're back with the bugs. Well, yeah. Bugs Bunny. This is this is this is is something else.
1: I think, I think there's there could be a relationship too between the idea of contagion and infestation, like creepy crawling things, bugs, and you know, it's all spreading all the bad. The other thing. That just occurred to me as we were thinking about we were talking about HIV/AIDS and sex in this film. What about the fact that our romantic leads, our couple, you know, the white people? What are they? Uh, let's see.
0: The white people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Our white romantic. The white leads, romantic yeah, leads.
1: Talking. Whatever is happening with them that we're supposed to it, care about. It starts out. So we have we have uh, Brian and Catherine. Brian and Catherine. So Brian and Catherine have sex quite early in their in the film they sleep together and if I'm remembering the rules of slasher films correctly you don't want to have sex because in the 80s in a slasher film which this is not but we're it's you know it's Carpenter you know we're close enough that I wonder if her demise and and especially women it's it's the, the women who get punished most reliably for having sex that her cardinal her cardinal sin here is is punished in the end but those moments are separated so far that i actually don't think that's what's going on but it was a thing that i was wondering i about. would
0: say you you might be right because she's actually like he like kind of wants to get more serious about it and she is like uh this is just the thing we do like whatever man like then she gets more sentimental about their connection as it's clear that they might die at any moment because you know the 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 sort of uh the slime zombies are doing their work <laughs> She sacrifices herself though, yeah. And this is an interesting thing to talk about. So like, it could be a kind of Madonna horror dualistic thing sure. going on because she she's like she is. It's interesting. She's like kind of okay with just like this more casual relationship. She's just you know and like fuck Brian that guy. She doesn't know that guy anything. Um, that mustache man. Um, love to all our listeners with mustaches, but like Brian, like Brian's mustache is like really ill advised as someone who's had an ill-advised mustache in his own life. Um, commentary ends there. Um, but, I, I listen, I was spending a lot of time in Germany. Like, it just happened. It was just, like, a natural consequence of that. Yeah, um, totally,
1: totally. I don't hate, I don't hate his mustache. I don't hate his shirtless scenes. Like, it's fine. It's just, it's more his character that I find objectionable, oh, to he's, be honest.
0: He's a... So she she's way more heroic than she he is like in some ways she's like she's smarter she's she's smarter than everyone else It's interesting, though, her act of selflessness is paired with Donald Pleasance's priest's, like, delusional belief at the end. Like, he's he's reading his breviary. He's ready for some final confrontation as, like, Satan is, like, pulling the dark god out of the mirror. oh, And, like, she pushes Satan in and gets sucked into the mirror. And she sacrifices herself as, like, a real Christ figure would. He, as the priest, is supposed to be, you know in persona you know but like actually he lets her do it and then he throws an axe and destroys the mirror and he's like i fucking did it baby you know like um he's flexing he's like he's on the he's on the stretcher getting rolled out to the ambulance and he's like i kicked ass me and god kicked ass and you're like yeah what about what about Catherine, mann you know, you didn't jump into the parallel dimension, you fucking idiot! Like
1: he was also portrayed as cowering with that breviary, right? He was <laughs> cowering in fear from the terrifying Calder. evil. I was, from we Calder. were, wi-
0: we were waiting for
1: Calder to like yeah. to shiv him. Yes, like, that would have actually maybe been satisfying. I didn't say it.
0: I know. I can't believe he didn't go. I was like, oh, my man, like Calder is gonna kill this right. dude, and he. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so that was yeah. that was kind of sort of a surprise, the end, which was interesting. Yeah, but uh, the we had the sacrifice, and and then he's bragging because of course, right. But it's interesting that he'd had his huge crisis of faith and by crisis of faith I mean he seemed to leave it behind entirely and yet you know the moment of truth comes and he is cowering but also praying and then someone else actually does the thing that matters he does a small thing closing the door and then it's all about him and God and how great he is yeah it's it's an odd sort of sequence
0: not a flattering image for our men of the church this was really i thought this was was quite
1: fun and concentrated we hit the things i
0: wanted to this was very enjoyable yeah yeah you know and like it was funny like it was one of the carpenter movies like i said i hadn't seen it looked scary it looked creepy it's you know to the listeners it's actually it's not that scary you can totally watch it it's like it's fun I would say what would you what would you say? Like I thought it was pretty fu- I thought it was fun. Yeah, it depends on your,
1: you know, uh yeah, your personal you're... comfort level with this kind of movie, but to me it felt milder than most 80s slasher f- picks for
0: sure. There's uh, I will tell you, it's and compared to like The Thing, which is like his uh, like so he does a apocalypse trilogy right. because each film ends with a bad with like with a with a very non-optimistic ending. Um, so like, you know, the thing ends badly. This ends with like, oh, like Catherine's going to come back as the antichrist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then in the mouth of madness ends badly too. Um, the thing is scary as fuck. (laughs) I will say. And he's remaking a film. He's, he loves genre films and he's remaking Howard, um, Hawks, uh, the thing from outer space, which it's also a quite effective film. The thing, 1982, the thing. Kick ass movie. Incredible. Starring Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's a big John Carpenter lead. But yeah, really incredible effects. Scary, like on alien level, scary. Like you have the claustrophobia, you're trapped in an Arctic station with a a shape-shifting but really gross alien. And it's it, it kicks ass. It's but it's scary. Wow. And okay. This is not nearly as scary and this didn't have the budget. Um, this was he had a commercial failure with Big Trouble in Little China problematic cult fave for many uh, was supposed to be a big budget big blockbuster success was not and kind of went back into B-movie mode but um, I will the thing is the thing is amazing and scary and really scary and really scary and Halloween is scary too um, I don't know. I don't, I, it, you know it's it's the classic it's right? kitschier but it's um,
1: it's scary it's a lot scarier than Prince of Darkness <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean it is. Uh, the funny thing, speaking on our our, our theme of evil in, in cinema, and Donald Pleasance, who's in both films, Donald Pleasance is you know psychiatrist priest. It's very Foucaultian. Um in terms of the pastoral office that's being occupied here by Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. But here, like Donald Pleasance is a psychiatrist for Michael Myers, the serial killer, and people are like, so like, what do we do with Michael Myers? And Donald Pleasance would be like, he's just evil incarnate. Like ah yes, the man of science. <laughs> like, what a, thanks for that. What, totally what objective a diagnosis. View. Totally yeah, we can observe <laughs> what, that. So okay, thanks. Yeah. What what a great what a great uh, nuanced discussion of this guy's psychopathology. Great. He's just evil. <laughs> um, but yeah, this it's fun. It's totally worth watching. You have to rent it. It's not like on any you know streaming major service. streaming platform. But it, you know it's 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 accessible. Um. And so, yeah, I had a great time talking about it. Great to, you know, they're not a ton of great grad student, grad school movies, I would say. There's, like, you have Wonder Boys, but that's like, more like MFA. It's kind of, you know, it's, great. it's grad school, but it's, like, kind of, a, you know, they're, it's not, like, PhD people. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a different thing. And, yeah, I don't know, like, Goodwill Hunting, he interacts with grad students, but, like... Uh, is that a grad student movie? No, but this really know.
1: solidly is. I actually feel like I need to go look up what the other grad student movie says and see if any of the other grad student movies intersect with evil or the devil.
0: Well, they inherently do for <laughs> institutional reasons. Okay. <laughs> but...
1: Well played, Klaus. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned for next time. I think we'll probably continue our Sinful Cinema series. Perhaps not for the next episode, but definitely stay tuned in coming episodes this summer. So thanks for listening.
0: See you next time.